I'm excited to open up God's Word. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you can go ahead and open up to Luke 23. That's right. Luke 23 tonight is where we are going to land. We get excited about opening up God's Word and studying God's Word. And as we begin this sermon series, Imperfect People, Perfect God, I want to begin with a message that I believe is very, very important for our day and age and also for our season of life that we're currently in um, as college-age students, as young people. Uh, tonight, if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write this at the top of your notes. I want to give you my title. My title for tonight is Culture vs. Christ. Culture vs. Christ. So with this series, Imperfect People, Perfect God, we very much do have a problem. And that problem, of course, biblically, is sin, that we are imperfect. The Bruno Mars song, Just the Way You Are, is not necessarily scripturally true. We, as good as some of us believe we are, we have issues. We mess up. We make mistakes. We disobey our parents growing up. We make mistakes as adults. We get speeding tickets, plural, right? Like we, we make mistakes. Like we are imperfect people. We sin and we have a problem. And the solution is found not in us because we can never get ourselves there. Our solution to that issue is found in the Lord, a perfect God, a perfect Savior, which is Jesus Christ. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find our restoration. That's where we find a new life, and we, when we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, not in a religious way, right? We're here in the South. We're big on religion and just works and going through the motions, but where we accept Christ in a relationship way, where it truly transforms who we are from the inside out, where we are actively, daily walking with our Creator. That's when we experience new life. And so in this series, we're going to tackle a lot of cultural issues that we struggle with. And tonight is the big one, bowing to the culture itself. Now, many of you know my testimony already, but I spent a number of years before I gave my life to the Lord coaching high school basketball. And I coached at Bartlett High School. And I built a lot of relationships with a lot of players there. And for me, um, I had a, in the middle of my coaching era of my life, I had a radical conversion. I was very against Christianity. I was very against the church. And I was trying to find my purpose. I was trying to find what am I supposed to do in this world. And I had a radical encounter with where I met Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. It was through God's word is where I learned who I am and who I'm created to be and who Jesus is, most importantly of all. And I gave my life to the Lord at 21 years old, halfway through coaching. And so when I gave my life to the Lord, I went right back to Bartlett High School. And for me, it was like a light bulb had switched on. Like I had finally understood why I was coaching, why I was here, and what my purpose is supposed to be. Like I realized the gospel came to me because it was on its way to somebody else. But culturally, as Christians, we confuse that, right? We oftentimes let the gospel stop with us, and we never build relationships with people who don't have it, who don't know it. And so I went back to my basketball players, and immediately the very first thing I began to do is share Romans 6.23 with them. Some of you know it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I began sharing scripture with these guys. We started memorizing scripture in practice. So they would do a drill and they would come over to the sidelines and I'd be there. And since I was assistant on varsity, I could talk to them in a conversational way. I had one player who did a drill, came right out, recited Romans 6.23, went right back into the drill and it was glorious. I was like, praise the Lord. You know, we're seeing life change happen. And so I took a bunch of these guys to Beach Week with me one year. And I have a picture that'll come up on the screen. I have two of them actually. And this, uh, this is the trip where Dakota... Uh, gave his life to the Lord and got baptized, and that's some other of my basketball players. And we had a great time that week. I have another picture, I think, that will come on the screen of a baptism with one of my players, and it was a really incredible moment for us. This, the first photo was five years ago. This photo was four years ago to put some date 
to it, and my head is still just as big. But we, uh, we saw a lot of life change happen. And uh, what I did that week is I swam in the ocean with him. I hung out by the pool. We ate good food. But I had gospel conversations with him. I had conversations about the Lord. I had conversations about God. And I'll never forget, I want to share one story with you to open up and intro this message. It was the last night of Beach Week, year one. And I had so many conversations with my basketball players about Jesus. And why are you not giving your life to the Lord? Why wouldn't you? What's your fear? What's keeping you from it? And I'll never forget the last night I was praying for one of them who I was really close to to give his life to the Lord, but he kept rejecting it. How many of you know sometimes we need to hear the gospel a lot before we accept it, right? Like that's, real, that's a real thing. And he had heard it, but he wasn't at that point yet of really accepting it. So it was late one night at Beach Week, one of my favorite trips of the year. We were sitting out. I think we were out too late. I would have gotten in trouble as a counselor. We was out sitting by the pool. And this is what I asked him. I said, man, listen, I'm not going to say his name. I said, man, listen, what's stopping you from going all in for God? I was like, what is really stopping you? Like, what is keeping you from getting, like, serious about your faith and owning it and stop being, like, you know, Mr. Cool, stop being all about the culture, stop being all about, you know, everything. And, and this is what he looked at me. He said, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. He looks at me as honestly as he can and says this. Coach, when I go back to Memphis, I am going right back to being surrounded by people who are in love with sin and not in love with Jesus. And I sat there for a moment. And he added one more thing. He said, I don't know how I could ever live for Jesus when I live in a culture of people who are living for the world. It was the most honest thing I'd ever heard of because at 18 years old, 17 years old, he realized for the first time that as he goes back to Memphis, you can't do both. You're going to have to make a choice. For him, he was honest enough to admit it before he made the choice. Some of us have made the choice for Jesus and we still won't admit it that this, you can't ever please the culture and please Jesus Christ at the same time. So my basketball player Thankfully, he gave his life to the Lord. Can we make some noise for that? Like, praise the Lord. Amen. I'm telling you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, man. God's good. But when he got back on the bus, he came back to Memphis realizing that he is heading into a cultural, spiritual war. So college students, as we start off the fall, let me ask you a question. Are you aware of the cultural war you live in? My basketball player got on the bus knowing that some of us have been living in Memphis for a while doing our thing, and we're unaware of the cultural war that we are living in. So many of us are trying to live double lives. We're trying to live with one foot in the pool, one foot on concrete, one foot over the fence, one foot on the other side of the fence. So many of us are trying to do both, and it's so exhausting. It's so tiring when you try to live a double life, is it not? It's so tiring. And so for you, you live in a very, very lost culture on your college campus, at your workplace. I don't, I'm not breaking news to you. I know that you know this. On your college campus, the culture is not, if it's a secular campus, it's not Praising Jesus, it's pursuing sin. It's all around us. I was there. In your workplace, you are surrounded by people and their lives are broken. If they don't know Jesus, their lives are broken and they are struggling and they are hurting. Maybe they are well off financially, but you see the pain in their soul when it comes to depression and loneliness because money will never satisfy the soul. You see it everywhere. We live in an imperfect, broken, fallen world. And we see it all around us. We are in a cultural war. And so you are surrounded every day by people who are living and pursuing the culture. But if you're in Christ, you are called 
to, have, to be a new creation. That you have been made new. In fact, Scripture says that when you have Christ, you have a new home. Philippians 3 verse 20 says this, if you want to write down this reference. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait, Paul says, for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ethan, let's think about this for a minute. If you are not a Christian and you're here tonight, let me tell you, thank you for being here. We're glad that you're here. I was once you. So how could I not love you? <laughs> to be honest. That's as brutally honest as I can be. Thank you for being here. We disagree on this. We disagree on God's word, maybe his existence. But we appreciate you being here, and we pray that you give your life to the Lord because it's the best decision you can ever make. But if you're here tonight and you do know Jesus, you have a new home, you are a new creation, does your life really reflect that? One thing I wrote down in my notes is, it's difficult to be a citizen in heaven if you're still trying to make yourself at home in the world. Honestly, as Christians, let's be honest, let's be real, let's be raw tonight. That's what The View is all about. We are real and raw, imperfect people worshiping the perfect God. We've said it for years. Hear me, if you're trying to make yourself at home in the world, you're never going to look like a citizen of heaven, and that's a big issue. So if you do know Christ, the question and the issue that I want to tackle tonight is, does your life look different the way Scripture says it should? This means that you don't try to act different. You just are different. You don't try to act set apart. You just are set apart. But for a lot of us as Christians, if we're honest, if we're called to be set apart, why do we still so easily fit in with the world and with the culture and with lostness and with this idolatry that our nation and people around us are struggling with, whether that be money, popularity, success, whatever it is, do our lives as believers truly look radically different? So tonight I don't want to wake you up that if you're a believer, you are in a cultural war. Are you going to choose culture or are you going to choose Christ? My sermon in a sentence, and then we're going to read Luke 23 is this. It'll be on the screen. It says, culture never died for your sins. Only Christ did. So please don't go dying for the culture. <laughs> for me growing up, hip-hop culture did not die for my sins. Only Jesus did. Let me tell you something. Christian culture, as great as it is oftentimes, did not die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did. Instagram culture, your campus's culture, pop culture didn't die on the cross for your sins. So why do you and I worship? But I want to tackle that issue tonight, and I want to call us, you and me both, to live as new creations as citizens of heaven. And so in Luke 23, let me paint a picture of where we are here to understand this, because we are at the height of Jesus's testimony, the gospels of Jesus. We, we find ourselves at the end of Luke 23, at the beginning of Luke 23, at the end of his book, and where we are now, Jesus has been arrested. He's done incredible works, right? He's gone against the culture. He's upset the Pharisees. He's upset a lot of people. He's healed a lot of people. He's done miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. He has shown that he is the Son of God, and he now stands before Pilate. Jesus is on trial. Where we find ourselves in Luke 23 is that Jesus stands before Pilate. Now, here's what's interesting. The Jews want Jesus crucified, but in order to do so, they need the Roman governor's help to pull this off. So they needed, ultimately, to make Jesus look like a threat to Roman rule. Like, if they were going to make this happen, they had to make him look like a threat. So what they do is they accuse him of, this comes straight from Scripture, misleading their nation, 
All right, that was a big one. Hey, this guy is misleading our nation. They accuse him of opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, which is an outright lie. And then they are saying that he is claiming to be the Messiah, a king. And so they have thrown these accusations against Jesus. He stands before Pilate, and we're going to see how Jesus responds to this. Now, a very interesting character in this account is Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, we're going to get into him in a minute as to who he is, but understand from the beginning before we read this, that Barabbas has been convicted of crimes. Like, he has been arrested, he has been sentenced to death, and he is about to die. And ultimately, we're going to find ourselves at a place tonight in Scripture that's so impactful where the people of Jesus' day are going to, Abigail, have the choice between Jesus or Barabbas. And if you know the Gospels, you're very familiar with who they choose. And I want to walk through how this is so impactful for us today. So if you will, look with me at Luke 23. We're going to start reading tonight in verse 13. Thank you so much again for being here tonight. Excited to open up God's Word with you. And it says this. Luke 23, verse 13 says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. And he said to them, referring about Jesus, you have brought me this man as one who misleads people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things that you accuse him of. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Verse 16, therefore, where am I? I'll make sure. Hold on. Verse 16, therefore, I will have him whipped and then I will release him. But look at verse 18. Then they cried out all together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. Verse 19, he had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. It's crazy how this unfolds. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again. Pilate quite literally has to make a decision to follow truth that he knows, which he believes Jesus is innocent. He can follow truth, or he can quite literally follow culture, the overarching consensus, the popular belief, and he doesn't follow truth. And it's recorded for all of human history. He follows the crowd. Let me tell you something. You follow the crowd in today's world, you're going to find yourself following lies, not truth. Out there in the world, you have a choice. You can follow that which is popular, or you can follow that which is true. College students, I urge you, as Scripture urges me, to follow truth and not follow lies. Look at what it says next. Going to verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, he said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Before I read this, this next verse, can you imagine if this was you for a minute? Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Bible, right? Like imagine that you have done nothing wrong, that you are not a criminal for a moment. Imagine being falsely accused. How would that feel for you? Let's take it another step. Imagine you are lied about, slandered about, that there have been false accusations made against you, 
And when you are trying to be released by Pilate, the crowd is literally does not care at all about justice. They just want to see you nailed to a cross. Can you imagine? We never put ourselves in the Bible. How would you feel? Can you imagine? Verse 23 says this. But they kept up the pressure. Man, culture will throw pressure on you. Crowds will throw pressure on you. They kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. See, here's what happens with the world a lot of times. When the world doesn't like truth, the world just gets louder. You know why the culture wins a lot? Because Christians get silent. When the world gets louder, sometimes Christians get silent, and we don't share in love the truth that we have from God's word. The pressure increases. The crowd gets louder, saying that he should be crucified. So much that their voices won out. Verse 24. So Pilate, here it is, decided to grant their demand and release the one who they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for a rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. And then I have two things tonight to give you. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, we're just honored to be here tonight, to be in your presence, to open up your word. Father, we're just so grateful to be able to worship you and to seek you in this culture. God, we need your strength. We need you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Father, we can't do it without you. Lord, I pray tonight for anybody in the room who doesn't have a real relationship with you, who's been following religion, following the culture. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to them and break them over their sin and that they would give their lives to Jesus tonight. Lord, I pray for all of us in the room, for those who are believers, that we would be set apart, not just try to act set apart, that we would live different than the culture. So, Father, rock us tonight. Speak to us tonight. Lord, we want to have a movement of you happen. So, Lord, we pray against the enemy in the name of Jesus from this place, God, that you would bind him and that you would allow your word to be shared. Father, we love you. And if that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. I have two things to draw your attention to. Here's the first one. Number one. Let's take a moment and focus on the perfect Savior we crucified on the cross. Let's take a moment and let's look at the perfect Savior who we crucified on the cross. Now, Pilate calls all the influencers together that he can. The chief priests, the leaders, the people. And he tells them that he cannot find anything that Jesus has done wrong. But the crowd of people are bloodthirsty. They want Jesus dead. They are desperate. But let's take a back, step back for a moment. Let's think about this practically. What has Jesus done to make the Jews want to crucify him so badly? Like, let's think for a moment. Contextually, why are the Jews so mad? Because if you ask Christians this question a lot, like why did they want to crucify Jesus so bad? Some Christians will give you different answers. Not all of them are entirely true culturally back then. You have to understand that, right? Because what you'll hear a lot of times is like, oh, they crucified Jesus because he ate with sinners. So that's why I hang out at bars, right? Like that's, we use that to kind of push our argument sometimes. Like did they crucify Jesus because he hung out with sinners not really. Like, they didn't like him for that. Like, that was a big thing they had issue with, but they were not nailing him to a cross because he hung out with tax collectors. That was not the big overarching emphasis. But see, we don't really understand that. Did they, I wrote this down, did they really 
want to crucify him because his teachings blew them away and, and embarrassed them, like sort of. Like that probably had a big part of it, his teachings. Ultimately, Scripture tells us the number one reason why they wanted to crucify him, the real issue that they had with Jesus, like why they were bloodthirsty to see him nailed to a cross. And here it is. Scripture tells you. John 10, verse 33 says this, why they wanted him dead so bad. It says, we aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you, being man, make yourself God. There's another place in Scripture that references how they want him dead because of who he is. Here's what you have to understand. The greatest offense Jesus made to them is not just that he ate with tax collectors, not just that he fed the 5,000. It wasn't even ultimately about the Sabbath. That was a big part that made them mad. Well, the reason they are bloodthirsty to nail him to the cross is not anything necessarily that he did, but it's because of who he was claiming to be. The ultimate offense to the Jews, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders is Jesus's identity. The fact that he claimed to be the son of God, fully God and fully man. The fact that he claimed to be the fulfillment of the law. The fact that he claimed to be able to forgive sins is the ultimate issue they had with Jesus Christ. It was, hey, you are claiming to be God and that's an offense and we must crucify you for it. So understand this. Ultimately, the world's greatest issue with you is not necessarily when you go love your neighbor. The world will share those principles of, hey, man, we should be encouraging to each other. We should be nice to each other. The world gets behind that. The ultimate issue our culture is going to have with you is if you're claiming to live for Jesus Christ, who he is. Because, watch this, if Jesus's identity was true, that ultimately means his authority is true as well. And ooh, our world, oh, I tell you what, as a lost soul, I did not like hearing that I had to come under the authority of God Almighty. Why? Because as a lost 21-year-old, I wanted to be my own authority. I wanted to be my own moral decider. I wanted to be God. And when you believe who Jesus is, that means all the Old Testament is true, that the God of Abraham is true, and that means that Jesus Christ is the sinless Savior who rose from the grave three days after being crucified. That his identity comes with authority, and it comes with authority over you and me. They wanted to crucify him because of who he is. And understand this, if you are following Jesus in our day and age, I believe there's a day coming. Our pastor has said it. I believe there's a day coming where the world, our nation, will want the same for us if we're choosing to follow Jesus. Which will you choose? Will you choose the culture or will you choose Jesus Christ? They have an offense with who he is. It's the fact that he is the Messiah and he's not giving them what their personal preferences are, that he is not fulfilling being a political king and saving Israel, but that he is born of a virgin, being homeless, crucified on the cross, nothing flashy, but doing miracles and works of God amongst sinners, amongst sinners. Who he is, they have an issue with it. So you want to know when... They were probably the most upset. It's when Jesus gave this statement right here, I would imagine. I'm, I don't know which one made him the most mad, but this has to be at the top. When Jesus made the statement in John 14, verse 6, this is what the world has issue with. Remember, the world can get behind some of Jesus' teachings. But when it comes to Jesus being God, the world has a big issue with that. And it's this statement right here, John 14, verse 6. If you know it, you love it. I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. So for me as a believer, 
28. Do I love all people? Absolutely. I try my best to love all people. Do I agree with all people? No. If somebody comes to me and they love basketball and they love the Grizzlies and they love coaching and they love Dakota and they love all these things, but they say, hey, I don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, though. Am I going to continue to love them? Absolutely. But I can't agree with that statement. I don't believe there's any way to eternal life, to salvation, scripturally, outside of Jesus Christ because of what the Bible teaches and because of what we have seen throughout all human history and my own personal testimony. Do you believe that? I mean, in here, to me, you might say, yeah, I'm with you, Pastor. But like, let me ask you, in your workplace, right? Let's, put, let's make this so real. Man, in your workplace and on your college campus, when somebody looks at you who's a different religion or atheist or whatever, and they say, hey, man, uh, I don't really believe Jesus is the only way. He might be an option, but not the only way. Here's what bowing to the culture looks like. It goes with you saying, eh, you might be right. I don't know. I don't get into all that. Even though you know very well you do believe Jesus is the only way. You're just scared to step on somebody's toes with the truth of the Bible. Not that you should be unloving, but that you should be firm in truth. Be prepared to make a defense. Being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience so that when you are slandered for your good behavior in Christ, those who ridicule you will be put to shame. 1 Peter chapter 3. Do you know what you would say when an atheist says Jesus is not the only way he's not God? Do you believe that enough to stand by it? Do I? That's the issue with they have. That's the issue our world has. Our world has an issue with Jesus being God because that comes with authority. That's why, to be honest with you, you can say you are a part of a lot of different groups and a lot of different religions and a lot of different fashion trends and popularity stuff. You can be with a lot of different stuff and not receive any persecution. Let's be welcoming to you. But let's be honest. When you're attached to Jesus Christ, persecution comes. We're getting real and we're getting honest tonight because we need to. We have to. So right here in this text, the popular consensus is that Jesus is guilty even without evidence. Isn't that crazy? That they don't want evidence, they don't want justice, and they certainly don't want truth. And we find ourselves today living in a culture that is the exact same. This is why so many people that you're surrounded by are lonely and depressed and broken and hurt. It's because they're blind to the reality that they have a creator that they have somebody who made them and loves them so much. So our culture today does not value truth. It values you and I creating our own truth. Have you ever heard the saying, that might be true for you, but not true for me? Have you ever heard that before? It's popular in our culture. That's not something you necessarily want to put to test. See, I love Dakota Tucker. One of the reasons why I love Dakota Tucker is because he can bench press 405 pounds, <laughs> which is insane. Yeah, thank you for applauding that. Praise the Lord. Is that Cody? I knew it. I should have known it. 405 pounds. I can't do that. You're supposed to be like, what? I can't. When Dakota loads the bar up with the plates, and he puts 405 pounds on there, he loads it up, and he's about to do his bench press, and I walk in, and he tells me, hey, this weighs 405 pounds, coach. I'm like, hey, man, I, to me, it's 90 I think it's 90 personally. It might be true that it's 405 to you, Cody, but I think it's 90 to me. And I lay down on the, on the, uh, man, what you call that thing? 
<laughs> when you lay down on the bench, you do the bench press. <laughs> when the bench press, I promise I'll work out. When I have to. When I lay down on the bench to try to do a bench press, I can believe it's 90 pounds all day long, GT. That 405 is going to come crashing down on me. Let's be honest. It don't matter how I feel about that bar. It's 405 pounds. He can do it. I can't do it. That's a 405-pound bar that I'm trying to bench no matter how I feel about it. To be honest, when you follow how you feel about something instead of the facts of it, truth is going to come crashing down on you one way or another. <laughs> one way or another, it's going to hit you. No matter how I feel about that bar, that weight is going to hit me. And for some of you guys, man, jokes aside, like, it's not 405 pounds that you're following a misconception on. You're walking around believing that you really don't have that much value. That's the 405 pounds for you. You're believing the lie from our culture that your value is determined by what you do or what you achieve. Do you know how heavy that is to bear because it's a lie? Do you know how heavy it is to bear the weight of walking around believing that if you don't drink and if you don't smoke and if you don't have sex before marriage, that if you don't do those things, you're not really going to ever find love and appreciation in this world. That's heavier than 405 pounds, brother or sister. That's tough. That's tough. And some of you are walking around believing those lies. For some of you, that's the misconception you're under. That even though God's word, watch this, has said, that your value is determined by God, not another person. Your feelings say otherwise. Your feelings say that another person has to validate you. So you are trying to bench press validation that you can't bear. You are trying to get from somebody else what only Christ can give you. And that's why you're following feelings instead of facts. You're not following God's word because you want something else in this world. That's what our culture says. Our culture, college students, quite literally is teaching you everywhere you go that if you just follow your feelings, you will find happiness. Newsflash, you never will. You never will. Your feelings cannot lead you there. But if you want joy, it's found in God's word. It's found in Jesus Christ, and that joy does not run out. Happiness is determined by situational circumstances. Joy is determined by the Savior that you live for. Because when you know what God's word says about you, you know it's truth, which means your feelings about another person really don't matter that much. They're important. Your feelings are a great passenger. They're just not supposed to be in the driver's seat. Truth is. So do you live for truth? Do you worship Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life? Is that what guides you, or do feelings guide you? Because I see so many college students following their feelings and following how they react to so many things in their life. And that can't be how we are. One thing I wrote down in my notes that I'd love to give you tonight is this. The popular truth is often not the actual truth, and the actual truth is often not popular. When it comes to truth, understand this. The popular truth is often not the actual truth. And the actual truth is often not popular. Think with me for a moment about how impactful culture can be. The culture among these people in Luke 23, they are putting a sinless man to death. And the key ones putting Jesus to death are the hyper-religious Pharisees. Some of the key ones who have desired to stone Jesus and nail him to a tree are the ones who are 
following God. Some of us as believers read this text about people being bloodthirsty for Jesus, and we say, I would never be in that crowd. Let me remind you, Saul, before he became Paul, was so trapped in religion and tradition that he killed Christians in God's name, thinking he was pleasing the Lord. Now, I'm not saying anybody in here is killing Christians. I don't believe it to be true, and praise the Lord for that. But what I do believe is that some of us are following religion and tradition and Christian culture, and we're not actually following the Jesus of our culture. I love Christian culture. I've been in it for seven years. Let me tell you, there are flaws. It has its imperfections. It has its sin. And some of us in the room follow Christian culture as if it was Jesus itself. It's not. Religion and tradition never died on the cross for your sins, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins before you ever knew that you needed him to. The Pharisees idolized their religion and tradition, and why we get caught up in that trap is because it gratifies and worships us instead of Jesus. When you find yourself worshiping and thinking highly of the things you're doing for God instead of the God you're doing them for, you're missing it. And there are those of us in this room who are falling into that. I'm guilty of it myself. I'm in the same boat with you. That's the great thing. As we navigate this together, I get to row with you. (laughs) Because I'm in the boat trying to figure it out myself. Jesus said something of the Pharisees that they didn't really like one time. He said this in Matthew 23, verse 26. He said, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Let me acknowledge we live in the Bible Belt. So Christians in the room, this challenge is for Christians. The religious in Jesus' day quite literally chose culture over Christ. What will you choose? Is it the world's culture? Is it religious and traditional culture? Is it your family's culture? Or will you follow the Jesus of the Bible? Not the God you make up in your mind, but the God who exists in the word that he has given us? That's a tough, tough question to ask. Let's keep looking here at at chapter 23, going to verse 18. It says this, Then they all cried out together, Take this man away, release Barabbas to us, a known rebel and murderer. The second thing I want to turn your attention to tonight is this, the imperfect criminal Christ replaced on the cross. So not only, number one, the perfect Savior we crucified on the cross, but number two, the imperfect criminal Christ replaced on the cross. And let's think about this. Let's bring this to life for a moment. You and I have problems that we have to deal with. For for, for a lot of us, You can't deal with a problem until you address it. And some of you, I want to encourage you, if you have a problem in your life, you have to address it or it's only going to get worse. For me, man, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I want to bring it back up because I feel like some of you might have been wondering. I've been having some car issues. It keeps happening. My dad's an incredible mechanic. All I got to do is take it to him. I have a left rear turn lamp that's out right now. And for me, I said, you know what? I'll just only turn right. Anybody else like that? You have a problem and you're like, oh, I'm just going to avoid it. You know what I mean? I was like, I turn right more than I turn left anyway, so it'll be fine. <laughs> now the whole brake light's out. Ignition fell out the car. All I got to do is take it to my dad. He has no problem fixing it. But what do I do as soon as I have an issue? 
only turn right. I'll avoid all left turns. That's no way to drive a car. <laughs> it's stupid as I say it. It's embarrassing, honestly. But man, jokes aside, that's how a lot of us do with the issues we face in our life. We will just, oh, I'll only turn right. I'll never turn left. You have a problem with somebody in your life? You have drama with somebody? You have beef with somebody because both of you are imperfect? What are you going to do? Oh, I'll just never see them. <laughs> I'll just always go right. <laughs> Walking into the gym. We're on the gym tonight. I'll stay on the gym. You got somebody at the gym you don't like? What do you do? You go in. Ah, I'm going to just go to the bench over here <laughs> where I can bench press. Cody, I'm never going to the treadmill. I'm not doing that. Run out in the world. You have issues with your family. What do you do? Ah, I'm only going to turn right. I'm never going to turn left. My left turn lands out. I'm never going to go home. Never going to see my family. You don't, let's, let's think this, you got a problem. You know you're supposed to build relationships with lost people and share the gospel, but you're not that confident to do it. So what are you going to do? I'm going to, well, i got a turn lamp out. I'm only going to turn right. I'm not going to turn left. I'm not going to go into places where there are lost people, so I don't even feel the pressure to share the gospel with them. We do this every day. You laugh in my turn lamp, but we do that with real life issues. Here's a big one. Whew, kickoff, we're getting into it. I'm stuck in sin. My life is living as a stronghold to the enemy. I am stuck in a certain specific particular sin. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I got a left turn lamp out. So I'm going to avoid wherever I would feel bad about that sin. Watch this. This is not in my notes. Here's what we do. When you have a stronghold in your life and you've got a left turn lamp out and you don't want to do the right thing to address it, here's what you do. You avoid going to places where you're going to feel bad about that sin so you don't have to think about it. Guess where you're going to feel bad and convicted a little bit over that sin? Not in the world's culture. They're going to tell you to do whatever sin makes you happy because happiness is the end goal. Where are you going to hear that sin's bad for you? From me in Dakota on a Monday night. So guess where you're going to avoid? Monday night. Or your home church. Or wherever you hear the gospel being preached regularly, because if the Bible's being preached, sin is called out, redemption in Christ is addressed, but you don't want to hear the sin part, so you're going to avoid it. Then you end up avoiding life groups. Then you end up avoiding godly community, because when you go around real godly community, they're going to ask you about that sin you're struggling with if they love you. If they don't love you, they won't ever bring it up. They'll just let you live in it. So, man, if I can be real honest with you, some of you got a left turn lamp out. You're not willing to address the issue that you have in your life, so you're avoiding having to deal with it, which means a lot of times we avoid the church, godly loved ones, and anywhere we would be uncomfortable about our sin. Not a single of that is in my notes. I don't know who that's for. Maybe it's me, but I'm telling you, if your left turn lamp is out, if you have an issue, you can't avoid it. Take it to the Lord and then take it to somebody you love because you're not going to find solutions out there in the world. You'll find solutions in God's word. You'll find solution in Christ. Are you willing to do something about it? Because where we find ourselves with Barabbas, Scripture speaks very clearly about him. He's a rebel. He's a murderer. And ultimately, he's a thief. He's committed crimes. These are not in question. This is what he has done. And what's so amazing when you come to this part of Scripture is that as Pilate questioned Jesus, let's bring this scene to life for a moment. Jesus, as he stands before Pilate in this moment, would have been, had his outer garment covered in blood from being tortured and beaten. He probably still had spit in his beard at this point as he stands before Pilate. Ancient sources confirm that a Roman governor could set a prisoner free each Passover at the request of the people, watch this, as a demonstration of mercy. 
Pilate could demonstrate mercy by freeing someone at the demands of the people. The people just had no idea how much mercy was really about to happen through the cross. Isn't that incredible? The foreshadowing. It's amazing. I love this chapter. It says this, Pilate offers the people a choice between Jesus and a man named Barabbas. Mark's gospel says this. It says that Barabbas is a rebel and a murderer. John says that he's a robber. And Matthew says that he's a notorious prisoner. So when Pilate gives the people a choice, he was assuming they'd choose to free Jesus. Why free Barabbas? He's a convicted killer. They don't want Jesus. Cole? They want the convicted murderer. So the bloodthirsty cries went out. Barabbas and Jesus are polar opposites. Think about this. We're going to walk through this as slowly as possible from Barabbas' angle. Barabbas has been judged and condemned for his crimes. He deserves death, and there is nothing he can do to free himself from his sentence. Jesus, on the other hand, Fernando, completely innocent, did not deserve death. And yet on this day, it's Barabbas who Jesus takes his place on the cross. What's even crazier? Barabbas was guilty of what they accused Jesus of. They said Jesus was a rebel. Barabbas was the rebel. So think about this, about humanity. I know you'll believe this to be true because there's brokenness all in our world. Humanity being the kind of imperfect, clueless people we are sometimes, I being the most clueless of them, I only turn right, not left right now. We're clueless people. We think we know the way, but oftentimes we really don't. If we're going to be honest, you might not agree with that, but it's true as humans, we don't. Here's what happened that day. As humans, they were chanting for an actual rebel to be free in place of Jesus who was not a rebel, but was the actual Messiah. In their attempts to free, in their attempts to crucify a rebel, they freed one. That's where we find ourselves as humans. Now, Barabbas, this passage comes to life when you realize that you and me are exactly like Barabbas. We might not be murderers, we might not be rebels, but every single one of us in this room has our sin before us. Just as David says in Psalm 51, all of us, Josh, have our sin before us. Every single one of us have broken God's law. Whether you've broken the world's law or not, every single one of us have broken God's law. So imagine you are Barabbas. Barabbas, sentenced to death. Zero chance of being set free that day. Probably pondering his death. He had had to have seen crucifixions. So can you imagine sitting in his jail cell, thinking about the crucifixions that he had seen, thinking about what was to come, knowing that there was nothing he could do, that death was imminent. He was going to be nailed to a cross and there was nothing he could do about it. And then here's what would have happened that day. As the crucifixions and the torment was on his mind, moments later he would have heard a Roman soldier come to his jail cell. I bet those footsteps were the loudest footsteps in the world. Jailer comes up to his cell. Barabbas is looking, saying, Barabbas is looking, saying, is this the time? Can't be yet. He hears the Roman Jailer's keys. Can you imagine hearing those keys, knowing that your, your door is about to be open and you think it's the crucifixion coming? He, he unlocks the jail cell, opens it, and he takes Barabbas out of the jail cell. He takes you out of the jail cell. And it's time to face the, 
the death that you are owed for breaking the law. And you're walked out there and you know a crucifixion is coming. But can you imagine Barabbas walking out there and hearing the child, the crowd chant his name? Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And he looks and he has no idea what is going on. And they take him out there and they take the shackles off. They take him off his feet. He's rubbing his wrists, whatever he did in that moment. The crowd's chanting his name. Yeah, you're free, you're free. And he has no clue what's happening. You have no clue what's happening. How in the world did you just actually get freed from a crucifixion? The death that you were owed. And then can you imagine Barabbas turning around and looking what happened? And he sees in his place a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi named Jesus Christ. He looks over and he sees Jesus standing there, bloody, with spit in his beard, taking his actual physical place on the cross that day. How would you feel? However you should feel is how you should feel every day. Barabbas is the only one who can say Jesus took his place physically on the cross that day. But man, the whole gospel is on the fact that you and I have broken God's law that we deserve death, we deserve a crucifixion, but Jesus Christ took your place. He substituted for you. And the crowd has no idea. The crowd is chanting Barabbas' name. They have no idea that Jesus has just taken all of their place on the cross as well. Can you imagine that from Jesus' perspective? I can't. I can't. I can't imagine the Savior of the world coming to die on the cross for all those people in the crowd, for you and me, hearing them chant Barabbas' name and not Jesus' name. Here's what following the world will get you. Your name will be chanted from time to time. Chants and applauses always end. What Jesus did on the cross that day still hasn't ended. 2,000 years later, we are walking around talking about, not Barabbas, and what he did for us. We're talking about Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross for your sins. I want you to understand, when your shackles came off, if you know Jesus, if you don't, you're still in shackles. You don't know him as your savior yet because you haven't repented of your sins and confessed him as Lord. If you know him, when your shackles came off, Jesus dying on the cross for you is the furthest his love could go, Sean. That's the furthest he could take his love, is dying in your place and then rising from the dead. Jesus affirms this even when he says, in John 15, speaking to the disciples, he says this. He says, this is my command. Love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13 says this. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his own friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Jesus sacrificed everything to have us. What have you sacrificed to have Jesus? What are you willing to sacrifice to have Jesus? 
John 11, verse 25 and 26 says this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then a verse from Paul that I imagine, can't prove it or anything, but I couldn't imagine from Barabbas' angle from like physically seeing his place being taken on the cross because of his sin. I couldn't imagine this verse from his perspective, but I hope from your perspective, it is from a perspective of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. And it says this, it's 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. College students, as a starter to this series, let me tell you, culture asks from you. Culture calls for a high price from you. Following culture is going to take everything out of you. It will not give to you. It will not bless you. It will not be there for you. It will forsake you the moment you begin to forsake it. I promise. But what you have offered to you in God's word through Jesus Christ will not forsake you even when you try to forsake him. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He loves you. He loves you so much. But you have a choice this fall. My kickoff message to you is this. Culture or Christ, you cannot have both. You can't live double lives. And thankfully, Reagan, I'll tell you this. Haley, I don't want to live a double life anyway. Culture ain't worth it. Christ will always be worth it.